Uh, one last thing before we jump in. I'm sorry, I forgot to put it on my notes for earlier. Uh, yesterday, we were supposed to have a church picnic, and for about 12 minutes, we had weather. And so um, in total California fashion, we were like, oh, no, wind, we can't have wind. Um, and so we canceled it. And so, um, and then by the time five o'clock came around, it was like sunny and beautiful. And I was like, darn it. Um, and so we're just going to reschedule it for June uh, where it's a little warmer and the weather is a little more stable and not so psychotic. And so, um, I don't know, has anybody ever done an escape room? Anybody ever been in an escape room? Okay. Uh, I know some people love them. Uh, not me. I'm not a fan. Uh, I've gotten stuck having to do them for a few different times because, well, because the people I was with wanted to do them. Uh, but I, it just was not my favorite thing. Uh, if you've never done one, uh, you pay money so someone will lock you in a room. And, uh, or a series of rooms with a handful of people and no obvious way out. And you have to decipher and sort of decode the room and look for clues and figure out how to escape out of the room. And, uh, and you have an hour to get out before you all die or the world ends or someone kicks a puppy or something bad happens. <laughs> um, and, and every time I've done one, no thanks to me, every time I've been a part of it, our team has always won. But that's the thing, is you don't actually win anything. They just let you out like they were going to a few minutes later. Um, and if you ever got locked in a closet or trapped somewhere when you were a kid, it's probably not the activity for you. Like if you just like have that sense of like, I can't get out of here, and then you start to panic and get anxiety, don't do an escape room because you're locked in there. I guess, I mean, there is kind of a panic button that you could sort of eject, but then your team would lose and everybody would hate you. So um, you probably don't want to do it. For me, it's one of those things that kind of always sounds interesting going in, and, and I think I'll like it, but I just get super bored really fast. And I don't know, maybe it's just that I'm too ADD, but I, I just can't bring myself to care or to be intrigued about trying to escape from this room. And so usually when I'm in there, like, I, like the first clue, like for about five minutes, I'm like, all right, let's find a clue. Let's find, that's not a clue. That was just a trick clue. Okay. And then I'm like, oh, here's a comfy chair that I could just sit in for an hour and nobody would bother me. That's awesome. That's what I was wanting to do anyway. And on top of that, for me, people are far more interesting to me than puzzles. And so the handful of times that I've been in an escape room, I usually end up just observing how the other people are behaving how they're trying to solve the riddles, what their thought process is, how they're interacting with the other people on their team, who kind of steps up and takes charge, who like the, the power sort of grab that happens in a group when you're trying to work together. That's all fascinating, fascinating to me. Like how people respond to pressure, like that's all really way more interesting to me than finding a clue that's gonna unlock a door. And, and what I've noticed is that most of the time, most people are lucky that they got locked in that room with other people. Because if they had to figure it out on their own, they'd still be there. Like they would have never gotten out. Like there's no chance. that They were moving in. That would be their house. And what's interesting though, as I started thinking about it this week, I actually think a lot of that stuff is true about life too. Because when it comes to life, it turns out that we as human beings we're much better at building walls and doors that lock us in, walls and doors that keep us trapped, than we are at finding the keys 
that will let us out and open into a different kind of life. We, we all have tendencies, certain patterns and habits and hangups, things that are difficult for us, things that trap us and lock us in, things that don't necessarily represent the kind of person we want to be or the kind of life we want to live. Like, have you ever tried to break a habit or change a behavior and you try as hard as you can and you push as hard as you can only to end up eventually doing the thing that you were trying so hard not to do? I have. Like, it, you name it, I've worked on it. I've tried to be less angry and more relaxed. I've tried to be more engaged and less distracted, more real and transparent and less concerned with making myself look good. I've tried to be more truthful instead of strategically shading things a certain way. Because lying without lying is an art form, right? Like you can leave out and omit details and shade things a certain way and technically you didn't lie. I've tried to be more at peace and less insecure. I've tried to be more committed and less flaky, more authentic and less phony. I've worked at trying to build up instead of tear people down, at loving more and judging less. I'm trying all the time to be a better husband and father and friend and leader and pastor and Christian and person. And I find myself failing miserably on a regular basis at all of that. Maybe, maybe you can relate. And here's what I found in my own experience is that the more that we repeat our patterns and habits, the longer we're trapped, the more likely we are to think, well, this is just the way that it is. It's just who I am. She knew that when she married me, right? She knew I had a temper. Like we, we say those kinds of things all the time. You knew I was bad with money, when you started dating me, like that's just, we're just stuck with it. So eventually we actually shift our strategy, right? To, instead of trying to work on it and be proactive and push through and try to get better, we just kind of go, well, I mean, this is just, this is probably the best I'm going to get. So I'm just going to kind of like hide this, cover it up, sort of hope that nobody finds out that I'm as big a jerk as I think I am, right? Hope it doesn't crop up its ugly head at the wrong time. It doesn't mess our lives up too much. And even when it comes to God, if you're a person of faith, right, we, we may come to believe that God will forgive us, but oftentimes we give up the hope that God could actually change us. That as we live into relationship with the person of Jesus, that we start off on this journey believing that it's going to change everything. And, and then there's times where we're just like, I don't know if God can even change me. He changed a little bit, but it just, just this thing, this place, this experience feels like it's just too big or too much. And because we're trapped, because we're locked inside, we actually start believing that the way that we are is all that's possible and nothing will ever change. The truth is, as I've learned about humans, is we don't actually tend to do better until we actually be, begin to believe that we can actually be better. So we've been in this conversation since Easter about God's grace, and I, I've actually been doing this a long time, pastoring a long time, but I think this might be one of the most important message series that I've ever done. 
It's been one of the most important conversations that I think that we can engage in. And, and truthfully, whether you're not a follower of Jesus or you're brand new to this thing or you've been a Christian since you were a wee little baby and your grandma was rocking you and teaching you amazing grace and telling you all the Bible stories, this conversation about grace and how transformational it is in our lives may be the most powerful and significant conversation we could ever have. It's because that's the beauty of grace, is that it actually breaks the chains that tie the possibilities of our future to the problems and the limitations of our past. That, that ties the possibilities of our very best moments and our very best selves to the brokenness of our worst experiences and worst selves. The, the sun was coming up on the city as she laid in bed asleep, this woman. She begins waking up as the daylight starts to break through the window. As she stirs, she actually remembers that she's not in her own bed. She rolls over, she sees her lover. She never thought she'd be the cheating kind. But there she is, a married woman in the bed of a man who is not her husband, in the bed of a man who has a wife. She gets a pit in her stomach thinking about what's at stake for her life and her family, and his life and his family. It's not right, but their nights spent together ease the emptiness. They allow her to feel loved and seen and known, if only for a fleeting moment. She lays there thinking about her family and his family, overcome with a complicated mixture of shame and regret. And she's trying to push it all to the side, processing it all as she lays there in bed. And suddenly there's banging at the door and then someone is in the house. It's the authorities and there's yelling and they search the house. She's overcome with terror. She realizes they're actually searching for her and her lover. She panics, all she, can, all she can think about is hiding, but she's barely dressed, so she screams as they burst through the door, grab her, her lover jumps out of bed, but they're not here for him, only for her. Fear, panic, chaos, confusion. As the mob of angry men forcefully drag her from the bedroom and out of the house, and they're yelling at her and they're calling her names. Some of them are quoting the law to her, like an indictment listing the crimes as she, that she's being charged with. She's dragged out into the street. She's grasping for clothes along the way, desperately trying to find something to cover herself with. They drag her into the street. The commotion draws a crowd. It's far beyond her worst nightmare, something she could not have imagined even laying there trying to process her life. At first... She was kicking and screaming and trying to get away. Now she realizes there's nothing she can do, and the louder she screams and the more she fights, the bigger the crowd gets. They drag her down the street, not to a government building, not to a law enforcement building. Nope, it's way worse. They're dragging her to the temple. In that moment, she knows that if she survives at all, her life will never be the same. The life she knew is over and everything in her life and about her life and for her life has changed forever. They reach the temple and drag her into the courtyard where a man is sitting over in a corner with a crowd around him and he's teaching. 
They drag her over in front of them and drop her to the ground right in front of the teacher. It's like a terrifying scene from a movie, only it's not a movie, it's her real life. Humiliated, ashamed, doesn't even begin to describe what she's feeling. The scent of her lover isn't the only thing she's covered in. Her own tears and snot and sweat, the sweat of, and spit of her assailants, dirt and scrapes and scratches from being dragged down the road. The men who grabbed her began quoting the law that they had shouted at her earlier to the teacher with the crowd. Laws that she was guilty of break, breaking. Scriptures that they believed justified her, their behavior. She makes no attempt to defend herself. How can she? She was caught. She's guilty. The crowd is stunned. The judgment in the air is palpable. And you could cut the tension in this moment with a knife. But the teacher says nothing. Instead, he bends down and begins writing in the dirt with his finger. This story is found in John chapter 8. And it's so compelling that John doesn't tell us the story from her perspective, so we don't get all the context and details, but he tells us the story from Jesus' perspective. He doesn't give us the backstory of the woman. In fact, we get almost no details on her or her story or the events that led to this moment. But this is what he does say in John chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And he kept demanding an answer. So finally he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one of you who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. <clears throat> when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus said to her, neither do I. So go, leave your life a sin, or go and sin no more. I'm so drawn to this story because it's one of those escape room moments, I think, in life. Where this woman is trapped. She's trapped by her choices She's trapped by the life that she's chosen. She's trapped by the worst expression of who she is. She's trapped in a place that she probably never dreamed that she would ever get to because the stakes for her couldn't have been higher. The contrast between her fear and her brokenness and her sinfulness and Jesus's perfection, right? The contrast between judgment and accusations of the religious zealots that brought her there and, and the grace and the compassion of Jesus it's so powerful and so moving and so compelling. Now, setting aside the brutality and just the, the sheer inhumanity of her, her accusers for a moment, isn't this kind of experience, isn't that one of our greatest fears, to have our worst moment put on display for everyone to see? For us to have lost our cool and left 
something on somebody's voicemail or for us to have lost it in a public place and somebody get us with their phone, right? For us to have done something completely out of character, but to have our worst moment put on display for everybody to see. To not only be found out, but to be called out publicly. Man, I'm reading this story. I'm so thankful the world doesn't work like that anymore, you guys. Like when your bad moments come to light, people just rush in with compassion and understanding. And So Jesus is teaching and John tells us that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they show up with this woman and they address Jesus sarcastically as teacher. They didn't recognize him as one of them, as a teacher for them, or really somebody who should be teaching anybody. It's interesting to me that in this one small way, there's a similarity between Jesus and the religious leaders, that they all share the title of teacher. Now, the truth is, is our lives are full of teachers, right? But most of the teachers that we encounter in life are like the religious people, right? There, 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 there will always be people in your life like the Pharisees whose sole motivation is to teach you a lesson. They, they want to catch you in your worst moments so that they can prove that they're better than you. They, they want to catch you in something that you said or you did so that they can discount everything about you. The truth is part of the reason that we attack the weaknesses in others is because it actually reminds us of the weakness in ourselves. In fact, sociologists who have studied human behavior in this area of how we relate to one another, they actually tell us that more often than not, the things that we accuse other people of are usually our hidden demons and our hidden struggles and baggage. See, there will always be those people and those voices in your life, people who are trying to bring you down a notch, people who are trying to teach you a lesson. And if you begin to listen to them, you will always find yourself falling short and being less than and never good enough. But on the other side, you have Jesus because he's a teacher, but he's a a teacher of a different sort. Because he's never actually trying to teach you a lesson. He's never trying to show you how bad or broken or sinful you are. He's actually trying to teach you who God is to you, even in your worst moment. How to find healing and grace in the middle of your brokenness and your sinfulness. And so they grab this woman and they rip her from the bed, from her lover. And clearly they don't actually care about what's happening because they just let the man go because he was guilty of breaking the same law that she was, but they didn't drag him down. And they do all of this just so they can teach her a lesson, actually, and so they can teach Jesus a lesson. See, the truth is, whenever you're judging another human being, whenever you're trying to teach them a lesson, you're actually trying to teach God a lesson. God, I don't like how you're handling this person. I don't like how you're handling this experience. I don't like how you're dealing with this person, so I'm going to go ahead and and help you out. God, I don't like how much grace you're giving them, so I'm going to make sure that there's enough judgment to compensate for the reckless amount of grace that you're giving that person. And we do that, and then we hide behind. I'm just speaking the truth. It's crazy that God gets such a bad rap as being full of wrath and anger and judgment when the reality is, is we're the ones. That's us. We're that way. And so they throw her down in front of Jesus and they make their case against her using the scriptures in a very selective way that suits their agenda. And then John 
says that Jesus does something remarkable. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond. He just bends down and starts riding in the dirt, which only makes them mad, right? When, when you're trying to get a rise out of somebody, when you're coming at somebody, when you're trying to you know, get them to respond, or you're trying to catch them and they don't take the bait, isn't that frustrating? When you're fighting with somebody and they don't take the bait. So they're angry that he won't respond, but Jesus keeps riding and they're so worked up and they demand an answer and finally Jesus stands up and says, all right, well, go ahead, but let's start with the one of you who's never sinned. Whichever one of you that is, go ahead, throw it first. And then he bends down and starts riding again. And, and this is really one of the only times in the scriptures that we're told that Jesus actually wrote something down. It's remarkable that, that Jesus led this movement, that his life and death and who he was has led to the greatest movement in all of human history, a guy who never wrote anything down. That there was plenty wrote about him, but this is the only time we're ever told that he actually wrote something down. But John doesn't tell us what he wrote down. Maybe it was the names of the women that the people who were accusing her, maybe it was the names that they, of the women they were involved with. Maybe it was a sin that they were guilty of. Maybe it was just a list of the commandments. Whatever it was, it was deafening and it left them speechless and silent. I, I actually love that grace doesn't turn the graceless tactics being used against it and use those against them. See, God's grace is your greatest defense. It would have been super easy for Jesus to just sort of like dodge the whole thing and kind of punt and not try to and not get caught, right? It would have been super easy for him to go, you know what? I'm sorry. Like you made your decisions to look for him to look at the woman and say that. Like I'm, you made your choices. Now, now you just got to reap what you sow. And so you guys got to decide what you want to do with her. It would have been really easy for him to do that. And nobody would have been mad. But he doesn't do that. He intervenes. Grace steps in. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. And that's the worst, that's one of the worst things about judging other people, right? Is the standard by which you judge others, that will be the standard by which you will be judged. In fact, Jesus says that same thing in another part of the Gospels. So John tells us that the woman stands silent during all of the whole thing. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't respond to any of the accusations. She doesn't ask for help. She doesn't beg for mercy. She doesn't plead with Jesus to do something. And the truth is, it's really hard to defend yourself when you're guilty and ashamed. And she honestly was without defense. But grace came to her defense. So Jesus actually steps in and intervenes and defends her. Now, as barbaric as this story seems on the surface, you don't have to actually look very hard in our culture to see that the voices of hate and accusation and judgment have never been louder. And especially today in our society, like they seem to get more and more pronounced every single day. But here's the good news this morning. They're no match for grace, that grace silences all of the voices in your life that try to make you less and keep you trapped. That's actually why Jesus came. That's the beautiful reality of his love and his grace, that in my worst moment, 
when I'm naked and ashamed and deserving of judgment, Jesus is there riding in the dirt, making sure that every single stone is dropped. If you don't hear anything else this morning, what I want you to hear is that God really is for you, that he really does have your back, that he's the best defense you will ever have. And by the way, it's not because he doesn't know who you are and what you've done, because he does. But that's the beautiful part, because that the one that knows you best, he's also the same one that loves you the most. So all of the religious leaders, they all drop their stones and leave, every single last one of them, until it's just Jesus and the woman. And if you didn't know what was coming, you'd think this would be like a terrifying moment, right? Because all the self-righteous hypocrites, all the self-righteous religious jerks who had no right to judge or condemn her are, are gone. They're all gone. And the only one remaining is the one who actually had every right to judge and condemn her. It's just you and your shame and your nakedness and your guilt and Jesus, the Son of God, holy and perfect, and Jesus straightens up and asks her, where are they? Did, has nobody condemned you? No, she says, neither do I condemn you. What, what I find so powerful is that Jesus doesn't water it down. He doesn't let her off the hook, which is what we would do, right? Instead of embracing grace, we just kind of justify and excuse what we did or what they did or what happened, right? Because we're uncomfortable with the idea of sin, we tend to use the word we tend to use words like mistake instead, right? Like I hear, we hear this all the time in our culture. People will actually do something terrible and then when they have to make a public apology, they say like, oh, I messed up, I made a mistake. It was an error in judgment. But Jesus doesn't actually make those kinds of excuses, right? He, he, what he doesn't do is say, okay, like hold on, time out everybody. Let's just all take a step back and be careful here. I mean, you guys don't know her story. She's had a really hard life. She came from a really difficult and painful background. Her dad wasn't really that great of a dad and kicked her out when she was young. And her husband, well, let's just say he isn't going to win, you know, husband of the year anytime soon. And the guy she's with, like, who knows? Maybe he tricked her or lied to her. We don't even know if she knew that he was married. I mean, let, come on, guys, let's cut her some slack. She made a mistake. Can we all just sort of move on? It was just a mistake. But he doesn't do that. Because there's a difference between mistakes and sin. Mistakes are unintentional, but they're, they're, they're accidental. But sin is a deliberate choice to do something we know is wrong. And if we're just mistakers, then we just need to try harder. But if we're actually sinners, then we need a savior. See, it's true that we all make mistakes, but it's also true that we're all sinners and broken and in need of God's grace like this woman. And so Jesus looks at her at the end of the whole exchange and says, go and sin no more. Leverage the freedom and the power of forgiveness and grace from this moment to lead a different kind of life. See, if we edit out this part of the story, we end up gutting grace of its power in our lives. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? That grace covers you, but it doesn't cover up for you. And instead of avoiding your issues, grace actually enables us to address and overcome them. We don't have to skirt around things or make excuses or justify because of something that happened to us. Grace is the key that unlocks the doors that keeps us trapped. 
but it's also the power to walk through those doors and into a life of freedom and healing. In Romans chapter eight, verses one and two, it says this. It says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, it's a great truth, but I want you to notice two words out of these verses. The first word I want you to notice is right there in, in the first verse is Romans 8, 1. It says, there, it's the word now. There is now no condemnation. See, God's grace is immediate. It doesn't say one day, someday, if you work hard enough, if you're committed, if you go to church every Sunday and you treat old ladies nice and you give away part of your money, like that's when grace, like that's when there'll be no condemnation. See, this is an incredible declaration about you, not in the future, about you right now. There is now, right now, no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing is held against you. Because of grace, you don't have to wait for some future date for God to love you and accept you and to approve of you. That that right now, his grace is extended to you. The other word I want you to see is the word no. That grace doesn't free us from just a little bit or some or even most judgment, most condemnation. It wipes it all out. The original word that gets used there that gets translated as the word no in English, it it means this. It means this is the final word on you. There's nothing coming after. There's no other shoe to drop. There's no other pronouncement to be made. There's no additional commentary that's gonna happen about your life. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody, um, one of those people that has to have the last word? Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody married to somebody like that? Like just, okay. It's, yeah. I, I'm, I, I tend to be one of those people. It makes relationships fun. Just keeps it entertaining, engaging, right? Like it's just like if, if you're one of those people, it's just hard not to say something when you know you're right and they're wrong, right? Like, I mean, you got to say it. A few years ago, Hansi and I were, um, pastors don't have arguments. We have warm discussions. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, we don't have heated arguments. It's very just a warm environment. And, uh, and, and she's um, a great debater, let's say. And she had made a very salient point that was clearly and obviously wrong. Um, and so she like walked out of the room and was going down the hallway and I was coming down the hallway and she went in the door, she went in the room and closed the door. And so I opened the door and I said what I wanted to say and I closed the door and ran back down the hallway. And I was in the living room like, boom. And then she texted me what she had to respond. And I was like, dang it. You can't use technology in an argument. That's just wrong. But here's the deal. God gets the last word. And when God says no, he means No, it means that there's no yeah, but coming about you. Because that's what we do in church, right? In religious circles, we give a nod to grace, but then we default back to judgment because it's just unnerving how gracious God is. Like you're loved and covered by God's grace, the end. There's no like God, I mean, God loves you and forgives you. I mean, yeah, but you gotta get your act together. Yeah, but look at how you're living. 
by the way, these verses in Romans 8, this whole idea about there being no condemnation, they, they come on the heels remarkably of Romans 7. I mean, Romans 7, 8, it's very logical. But at the end of Romans chapter 7, have you ever been tired of your own act? Like you're just like, I'm tired of being me. Like I'm just tired of losing my wallet or running out of gas or being an idiot or doing that same thing. Like at the end of Romans chapter seven, it feels like Paul's tired of his own act. And he's writing, he's like, and he writes these words. He says, the things that I don't want to do, those are the same stupid things that I end up doing. And the things that I want to do, those are not the things that I do. I end up doing that stuff again. And he's like, who can help me? Who can save me? How is there any hope for any of us? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Boom. And then he goes right into this verse. For there is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Says in verse two, because of Jesus. Finally, one of the most amazing gifts that grace gives us is not the power to throw stones, but the power to release the stones that we're holding on to so that we can not only find our way forward, but we can actually help other people find their way to freedom. Instead of grabbing stones, let us be the people who will give grace because that's what God has done for us. See, grace allows us to escape the rooms that we've locked ourselves inside of and then it comes alongside of us and helps us to be the ones to extend that same grace and freedom to other people. If you got a bag of stones just ready at the ready so that you see that moron on Facebook, what up? Because people say dumb stuff on social media. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. but we can be the people that actually give grace and grace allows us to release the stones and we can just be those people that's like, hey, follow me to freedom. Follow me to Jesus. Let me introduce you to somebody. You don't have to be the one that's chucking those stones so that people don't see all your baggage. You can be free.